It was five minutes to six on a Saturday afternoon. I had just spent the whole day, indeed most of that week, in the seminary library, desperately trying to wrap up my theology paper. Then I heard that dreadful announcement. Attention, please. The library will be closing in five minutes. Please begin to exit the building. We will reopen on Monday. I let out a big sigh and began to pack. I began to feel a bit frustrated, even discouraged, because my paper was due that night, and I knew I had run out of time. And not only that, I knew that following Monday, which was only two days away, I had to write my Greek exam, which was the most dreaded thing in seminary. It means memorizing over 340 Greek vocabularies and studying a Greek grammar book that was thicker than my Bible. Not your most exciting thing. I begin to feel tired and worn out. And honestly, the thought of just quitting and moving back to Vancouver crossed my mind. After a short walk, I finally got back to our dormitory and I opened the door. On the other side, I saw Josephine and little Josiah. He was about two at a time with big smiles on their face. Josephine must have noticed the fatigue and discouragement of my face. So she brought Josiah with her in her arms and came up to him and said, Josiah, let's give Daddy a big hug and tell him we love him. And as they wrapped their arms around me, Josephine whispered, Honey, just do your best. We know you can do it. They were simple words, but those words helped me. They encouraged me. It was as though a log was lifted off my shoulder. Yes, I still had to memorize the 340-plus Greek vocabulary that night and study that dreaded Greek grammar book. But somehow, knowing that someone was standing behind me gave me that gentle lift to press on instead of quitting. I'm so thankful for my family. And indeed, as I look back in my life, God has blessed me with so many great encouragers. In fact, many of them are sitting here today. You were there when I had doubts about my faith. You encouraged me when I was struggling with the decision to leave my career and enter full-time ministry. You encouraged me when I was having a tough time in seminary, even thought about quitting. I'm so thankful for that. And you know, I'm sure many others here right now have been encouraged by other brothers and sisters in DCBC. No doubt you have felt uplifted by someone who may be sitting around you right now and gave you a gentle word of encouragement when you're about to quit. I don't know about you, but as the world is becoming more and more demanding and competitive, and as the headline news become increasingly disheartening, I think the church has become the few remaining sanctuaries left where we can find encouragement. But you may be thinking, how can a church, how can our church become a place where both unbelievers and believers can find encouragement? I believe the solution rests with both you and I. In other words, you and I need to learn to become encouragers. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the topic of how to become an encourager. How to become an encourager. 
Today we'll be studying the life of a person who's well known for his act of encouragement. His real name is Joseph, but he's better known by his nickname, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. We'll be looking at several passages from the book of Acts, so let me invite you right now to just have your Bible ready. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you, near a pew, in front of you. Or if, uh, as one of my profs used to say, if you like Moses and love to carry your scripture on a tablet, <laughs> feel free to click along. Haha, <laughs> that was my first joke and probably the only one. Didn't work well, so that's all you get. <laughs> And as we go through these passages, I'm going to suggest to you that there are two things we need to remember. Two things we need to remember to become an encourager. You ready? Let's start with the first. To become an encourager, we must think like Barnabas. To become an encourager, we must think like Barnabas. What do I mean by that? I have two things in mind. You might want to jot them down. Simple, but you might want to jot them down. First, overcome fear. First, overcome fear. Second, offer forgiveness. Second, offer forgiveness. On the subject of overcoming fear, please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 26 to 27. Acts 9, 26, 27. This passage comes shortly after Paul's miraculous Converging experience on his road to Damascus. Notice what it says. When he, referring to Paul, came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas, notice the word but here, which is a mark of contrast. So you might say, in contrast, or like, unlike everybody else, Barnabas, took him, referring to Paul, and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Now, I'm sure you can imagine why the disciples were afraid of Paul, right? I mean, after all, as far as they were concerned, Paul was still on the dark side, okay? He was famous not for preaching the gospel, but for persecuting Christians. And in fact, some probably even thought his whole conversion experience was nothing more than a scheme to infiltrate into the Christian community. So when, they, when Paul all of a sudden appeared in the midst, they must be thinking, this guy is up to something. They were suspicious and afraid. Yet in verse 27, for some reason, Barnabas was different. Instead of reacting with fear, he embraced Paul. Instead of rejecting Paul, he treated Paul as his brother, even became his advocate. What happened? Why was Barnabas different? Why was he not fearful of Paul? Acts, doesn't not, Acts chapter 9 doesn't really give us an answer, but if you read further ahead, you may begin to see why. Turn with me to uh, Acts 11, Acts 11, verse 24, which reads, He, referring to Barnabas, was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. 
Here we see that Barnabas, given the description that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit? Interestingly, in the original language, the, the verb to be full conveys the idea, an image of a ship whose sail is completely filled up by the wind. And it is by the power of this wind that pushes the boat ahead. Whichever the wind blows, that ship sails towards. And if the wind stops, the ship stops. So you might say Barnabas here was almost like a ship. And just as the ship is empowered by the power of the wind and followed the direction of the wind, Barnabas was empowered by the Holy Spirit and followed the direction of the Holy Spirit. Instead of letting his own fear to take over to determine his path, he was willing to follow the Spirit's leading. I'm so thankful for Barnabas, because if it wasn't for him, I'm not sure what would have happened to Paul. So let me just pause here and ask you this. Who or what are you fearful of? Are you afraid to step out of your comfort zone? Do you fear doing something where the result is never guaranteed? Remember, our fear can get in the way of us doing God's work. For instance, we don't evangelize because we fear rejection. We don't reach out to certain individuals from certain backgrounds because we fear them. We choose not to do anything overseas because we fear uncertainty. We don't want to leave our comfort zone. Just ask me after the service. I can share with you right now the list of fears and struggles we're going through as we're trying to move to Singapore for this next chapter in life. But instead of letting your fear dictate your action, are you willing to be more like Barnabas and just put your fear aside and follow the Spirit's leading? This means stepping out of the comfort zone and doing what's right. This reminds me of a story that I heard years ago. It happened at a, um, a Calvary Chapel in the United States. On a uh, Christmas Eve, this church was having its annual Christmas concert. The orchestra was playing, the choir was singing, and everyone was just enjoying a time of celebration. Then all of a sudden, boom, the back door opened. A homeless man walked in. He was wet and cold. He began to walk down the aisle looking for an empty seat. There was none. Finally, he reached to the front and just sat down right on the floor next to the front stage. All the while, his rainwater was dripping on this newly shampooed carpet. People began to look around and thought, my goodness, what's going on? Some were distracted. Many were fearful of what this man was going to do. Suddenly, an old deacon stood up from the back and began to walk towards this homeless fellow. And as he was going down the aisle, people in the crowd were thinking, Finally, someone with the courage to do something and send this guy on his way. But as the deacon reached this homeless man, something unexpected happened. The old deacon took off his suit jacket and just wrapped it around this homeless fellow. 
he slowly reached down to the floor and sat right next to him. With the most gentle, loving voice, he said, Merry Christmas. So glad you could be here. This homeless man looked at him, surprised at first. Then he smiled. Because you know what? For the first time in a very long time, he felt loved instead of feared. He felt embraced instead of rejected. At that moment, that picture of fear all of a sudden turned into a beautiful picture of encouragement. Brothers and sisters, it's natural for us to act out of fear. I'm as guilty of that as anybody else around here. But 2 Timothy 1-7, chapter 1, verse 7 says, For God didn't give us a spirit of fear. Instead, he gave us a spirit of love, of power, of self-discipline. And if we are willing to put our fear aside and follow a spirit of love, of power, and of discipline, then we can begin to become an encourager like Barnabas. So to become an encourager, we must think like Barnabas. That means overcome fear. But there's a second part. Second, you need to offer forgiveness. Offer forgiveness. Turn with me to Acts 15. Everything we'll be looking at is in Acts, so you don't have to go far. Acts chapter 15, verses 36 to 39. And this passage has to do with Paul's second missionary journey. Acts 15, 36 to 20, uh, 39. It says, Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of God and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it was wise to take him, referring to Mark, because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Now, I'm not sure why Mark deserted the team on, uh, on the first journey. Some people speculate that at the time, Mark was still a young guy, and uh, somewhere along the line, he missed his mama. Okay? This is what the people in the South said. He missed his mom. Okay? And that may be the case. I mean, let's face it. We just had Mother's Day last week. Uh, at times, all of us miss our mamas, right? Uh, but whatever the reason might be, one thing is for sure. Mark dropped the ball. And Paul had a real issue with that. You might say he had a valid reason for doing that. But whatever the reason was, Barnabas was different. He chose to forgive Mark's past failure and give this guy a second chance. And as you know, later on, that Mark, whom Paul rejected, became a key leader in the early church. He even wrote one of our four Gospels. I'm so thankful for what Barnabas did. As an encourager, he was willing to offer forgiveness and give Mark a second chance. And you and I ought to do the same. But are we doing that? Are we doing that? How do we normally treat those who have dropped the ball in the past? Either unintentionally 
or even intentionally. Maybe they have bad-mouthed you or did something to hurt you behind your back. How would you react? Will you use that as your excuse now to bad-mouth them and hurt them? Or will you begin to show grace and offer forgiveness and do everything possible to try to reconcile with those individuals? That's not easy to do. I know that. But remember Colossians 3.13? It says, Bear with each other and forgive one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Scripture is clear. We have to offer forgiveness, whether we feel like it or not. I've been involved in prison ministry for over 12 years with a number of brothers and sisters here. And once a month, we would drive to missions and be in one of the institutions and just have Bible study with the inmates. I have to say it's one of my most favorite ministries because over and over and over again, I see the gospel transforming lives. And many of those inmates, because of studying God's word, are now brothers in Christ. Um, One time, I was uh, on my way out, and one of the inmates, who was about to be released, stopped me and said, Jacob, I want to ask you a question. I said, hey, what's up? He said, when I'm out, do you think I can go and worship at a church? Without even thinking, I automatically said, of course you can come worship at a church. Why wouldn't you? And then he paused and looked at me and said, well, I've, I've done some pretty bad stuff in my past. Do you think the church can ever forgive me? I paused, looked at him, and said this, I hope so, brother. I hope so. It's just like you. Are we not sinners saved by grace? He looked at me and smiled. He felt assured. But that simple conversation reminded me the importance of offering forgiveness, whether you and I think this person deserves it. Why? Because we're sinners saved by grace. And guess what? I did not, I do not, and will never do anything that will deserve forgiveness from Christ. I did not, do not, and will never do anything right to deserve Christ's forgiveness. Yet he died for us. And if we believe in Colossians 3, he called us to forgive just as he has forgiven us. And by the way, if anyone here has never accepted the forgiveness of uh, Christ, because only he can fully forgive your sins, let me encourage you to do now. Do that right now. You see, only by trusting in Christ do you experience full forgiveness. And only having been forgiven by him will you know how to forgive others. Remember, my first point is this. To become an encourager, we must think like Barnabas. This means overcome fear and also offer forgiveness. But there's a second point, which is this. To become an encourager, you must act like Barnabas. To become an encourager, you must act like Barnabas. What do I mean by that? First, speak out for the marginalized. 
Speak out for the marginalized. Second, partner with them. Partner with them. In terms of speaking out for the marginalized, please look with me again at Acts 9. We've actually read this, but let's go back to Acts 9, verse 26 and 27 again. When he, referring to Paul, came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Notice here, Paul didn't even get a chance to defend himself. They simply just wrote him off. But thankfully, Barnabas became his advocate and spoke out for him. Elsewhere in Acts 15, which we won't have time to read today, you see Barnabas doing the same thing. He was speaking out for the Gentile believers when the Jewish believers were just writing them off, rejecting them. My brothers and sisters, I know it's often easy to just keep quiet and lay low. I mean, that's no risk, right? But there are times when we have to speak out for others. I'm not suggesting all Christians should now become the next most vocal and most uh, uh, annoying lobbyists in the society. That's not what I'm saying. But you know, there are times when we have to speak out for those who can't defend themselves. Usually the ones who are now hurting and discriminated against often for things they had never done. Years ago, I had lunch with uh, the police superintendent of the Richmond RCMP. Fascinating guy. And um, over lunch, he shared with me something that I thought was not only innovative, but so refreshing. He told me whenever he can, he would take his police cruiser around, drive around town, and write out as many tickets as possible to teenagers. I thought, well, why am I having lunch with this guy, right? But wait a second, he told me the kind of tickets he writes are not the kind where the recipient has to pay a fine or a penalty. Instead, with these tickets, they can go to a movie, go to a cineplex and get a free movie, or go to Boston Pizza and get a free pizza. What he would do is whenever he drives around and catch a teenager doing something right, maybe picking up a piece of garbage or just not jaywalking or pushing, uh, you know, helping an old lady push a grocery cart, he would say, hey, stop. Freaked them out, of course. He said, what, what? He said, thank you for doing that. Writes a ticket, gives it to him, and then, you know, the face lights up. In other words, he would catch people doing right and reward them. But not only that, he would then go back to his police uh, station, and during briefing each day, he would tell his uh, police force what he had seen, all these great acts of Samaritan that these teenagers were doing. And then I asked him, well, why, why would you do that? He said, it's simple, Jacob. Today, there's so many bad press about teenage violence and vandalism. But not all teenagers like that. There's still a lot of good ones out there. I want my police force to never develop a negative sentiment towards teenagers. I want them to know that there's still many, many, many good kids out there. 
I wish the world had more people like this police superintendent who likes to catch people doing right, not doing wrong, catch them doing right, and tell others about it. And like Barnabas, this superintendent was willing to speak out for the marginalized, and in doing so, brought great encouragement to those around him. And you and I can learn to do the same, can't we? Wouldn't it be great if we strive not to catch fault, but to catch people doing right and tell others about it? Imagine what that would do in the community. Imagine what that would do in a church like ours. To become an encourager, we must act like Barnabas. That means speaking out for them. But also, we must partner with them. Look with me at Acts 11. Acts 11, 25 to 26. Acts 11, 25 to 26. It says, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christian first at Antioch. Interestingly, the Greek word for encourage is perakaleo, which has two parts. Para means alongside, and kaleo means to call. So to encourage, perakaleo, means to call someone alongside. And that's exactly what Barnabas, being the son of encouragement, did. He called Paul to be alongside, to be on missions with him. And by the way, at the time, that was probably a risky move. Because Paul was not exactly a well-liked individual. If you look at Acts 9, Paul was actually sent home to Tarsus for his own protection. Because after his conversion he raised such an uproar among the Jewish leaders that they all wanted to kill him. So by just hanging around this guy named Paul, you could get yourself killed. But that didn't stop Barnabas. He went and looked for Paul and invited him to be partner with him in ministry. As I say in my introduction, I'm so thankful for the many, many encouragers whom God has placed around me. Truth is, I'm an introvert. I don't like leading groups or speaking in front of people. Ask Josephine, who just left conveniently, but (laughs) ask her. She would say that's true. I actually prefer to be hidden. But throughout my life, God has blessed me with so many encouragers who are there to encourage me, to partner with me, to cheer me on. I believe, I remember when I was in high school, there was an elderly couple who I think is here today, but I won't point them out because I know they'll feel embarrassed, but they were there alongside me the whole time. They called me to serve alongside them, even though I lacked experience and confidence. At first, I would just brush them off. I'd say, um, like, no thank you, because I honestly didn't have a very positive attitude towards myself. And you know what? The thought of messing up before a crowd, that freaks me out. So I kept brushing them off. But because of their sincerity, the love, and the constant encouragement, I agreed to serve with them. Later on, they asked me to lead alongside them. 
But the whole time they partnered with me, stood beside me, even when I messed up big time. Honestly, if it wasn't for people like this little guy, I would not be in ministry today. I would not be speaking in front of you today. My dear brothers and sisters, the church desperately needs encouragers. Some of you here today are further along in your walk with God and life journey. That's a real blessing. But don't take that for granted. The young generation needs your words of wisdom, your experience, your counsel. Use your experience to bless them. One of the things I enjoyed most in seminary was to sit, was to just have lunch with my profs. A lot of them were well into the 70s and 80s. One was age 99 when he finally stopped teaching because the Lord took him home. He shared with me their life stories, both their successes and defeats. And I would just sit there and just soak up all the years of wisdom. The church needs to hear from the more mature believers. If you are further along in your life journey, I invite you to find a younger believer and mentor them. Encourage them. Pour your life into them. Share with them your successes and your defeats so that they too can grow in their faith and in their ministry. In other words, be the Barnabas. I know it's a hard thing to do because it takes a lot of work, right? And there's also risks. But you know, in doing so, you guys are raising up the next generation of workers for God's kingdom to whom one day you can pass your baton. As I end, let me just challenge you to become an encourager. That means think like Barnabas. Overcome your fear. Offer forgiveness. It means act like Barnabas. Speak out for the marginalized and partner with them. Allow me to give you two applications and then I'm through. Ready? First, if someone in this congregation has encouraged you, maybe by praying with you or just writing your word of encouragement, let me invite you, before the day's over, send them a text, an email, or go up to them and say, thank you for being my Barnabas. Thank you for being my Barnabas. Second application is this. I want you to pause and just look around and think about and look for the Pauls and Marks whom God has placed around you. These individuals are typically the ones who are discouraging and maybe going through a tough time right now. What I want you to do is sometime today, send them a quick text, an email, and just let them know, brother or sister, I'm thinking about you. I want to pray for you. Someone once said, encouragement is like peanut butter on bread. If you spread it around, it just helps things stick together better. Let me say that again. It's such a good quote. Encouragement is like peanut butter on bread. If you spread it around, it just helps things stick together better. Brothers and sisters, my prayer for VCBC 
is that we will continue to spread an atmosphere of encouragement such that both the lost and the redeemed will stick together. And in doing so, experience the full grace and the love of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Worship team, please lead us.